Coming up on this week's show, we visit Regency England with Anne Holly to talk about her novel, Restraint. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. Welcome to episode 206 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Will from willknaus.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host and husband, Mr. Jeff Adams. Hello, everybody. This episode of the podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. We'll have more information on how you can join them at the end of the show, along with a sneak peek of what we have coming up for you next week. So, speaking of Patreon... (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) That was such a smooth segue. Um, Jeff and I have recently uh, freshened up the Patreon page. We've got some new tiers of membership and some new bonus content that we would like to tell you about right now. Um, First, as always, uh, each member of our Patreon family gets a bonus episode every single month. That certainly hasn't changed. Uh, In the past, we've talked about, oh gosh, any number of things. Uh, The past couple of months, we have been uh, talking about movies that have been uh, celebrating a significant milestone in the year of 2019 and that's been a lot of fun so each month you'll get a bonus episode of the two of us riffing and talking about all the coolest stuff that we can come up with uh in addition to that um as always you're going to get a shout out here on the show when you join us on patreon you'll also have the option of getting a personalized thank you card from us to you um also uh we have let me I'm looking down at the list right now. Um, we've got, uh, uh, in addition to the new tiers, we've also come up with something brand new. Uh, we're going to do an additional bonus show every month. And this show is going to be called Big Gay Fiction After Dark. And in this bonus content, we are going to talk about some of the sexiest and spiciest stuff that we can find. And we're going to... <laughs> discuss and blush over it all for your listening enjoyment um this coming uh week we're going to be releasing a a sneak peek hybrid episode it's going to serve as the bonus episode for the month of september as well as give you an idea of some of the content we're going to be talking about in the big gay fiction after dark show so uh those of you who are already a member of our patreon community you'll have that to look forward to also we have a special membership tier and this special tier is for people who believe in making this show as accessible as it possibly can be. This is our transcription tier, and the money that we receive um, from this membership level goes specifically to making sure that all future and past author interviews are transcribed, that way that they're accessible to everyone. That's something we're super passionate about. Uh, We've (laughs) we've been working really hard in the past year uh, trying to get Um, that off the ground and uh, we are super happy to announce that uh, if you feel the same way that we do uh, now you can join in and all the transcription fun yeah we'll we'll have you listed specially as being transcript transcript producers on the show and it's 
We've been, ever since episode 180, which I think was the first episode of 2019, we have been doing transcriptions on our author interviews, but there are most likely somewhere between 150 and 160 interviews in the backlist that have never been transcribed. And we really want to get those transcribed. So as Will said, they, they can be accessible by everyone. So we've got lots of great new bonus content and early access to author interviews. Lots of great stuff. If you're curious uh, about more uh, and would like to read about what you get when you join our Patreon community, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast and you can find out more information there. Hi, I'm Jay from the LGBTQ romance review blog, Joyfully Jay. At Joyfully Jay, we review tons of LGBTQ romance, as well as romantic fiction and nonfiction. We review ebooks, audiobooks, and even the occasional movie. We typically review about 18 books a week, so Joyfully Jay is a great place to hear about new releases, catch up on books you may have missed, and find some new favorites. In addition to our reviews, each weekday we host an author as our first post of the day. This gives readers a chance to learn more about new releases get exclusive excerpts, find out about the author, and participate in great giveaways. Each author post on Joyfully J is exclusive, so you get access to book and author information you can't find other places. At Joyfully J, we love LGBTQ romance and are excited to share it with you. Stop by the blog at joyfullyj.com. You can also visit us on our Facebook group, The Joyful Jays. We'd love to have you join us. This week's book review segment is brought to you by Jeff. <laughs> he, was a, he was a busy boy this past week, weren't you? And actually, for the first one, it goes back like two weeks uh, because I was doing an epic 18-hour audiobook. And that took, that took a minute to get through. <laughs> uh, before I get into the details on the outstanding and at times extremely disturbing criminal past by Gregory Ash... Let's talk about one of the best lines that surfaced from the entire series. Quote, you broke the hospital with your ass, unquote. Does it get much more interesting than that? I mean, could you even imagine? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Summers often pokes fun at Hazard for being fat, which he isn't, but he pokes that fun anyway. And I'm really not going to give you the context for this line because it'll, it'll mess some stuff up. But I will say that it was... It provided a major tension break toward the end of the book, which is exactly what it needed to do. And I have to say well done to Gregory Ash for that, because in the midst of everything, I broke out laughing because of that line. Now, with Criminal Past, I am finally up to date with the Hazard and Somerset series, which I first reviewed back in episode 165. So it's taken me a little bit to get through these six books. And for such long ones, though, I really blazed through them as they came out on audio, with book six having only been out for about a month or so now. I had to know where this was going, and I just I took these in as fast as I could, because not only were Hazard and Summers such amazing characters, but the town of Warreda is so messed up, and I really had to see how it all came together. And man, does it blow up in this installment. This book boils down to Mikey Grames who was Hazard's primary tormentor in his high school days, along with Mayor Sherman Newton. Now, Newton's been a focus of several of the books, and it's, it's, it's long appeared that he's been heavily involved in shady dealings around Walrader real estate. 
There's little doubt, on the other hand, that Mikey is totally mixed up in some super bad stuff. And as this book starts out, Hazard and Summers are asked by the police chief to prevent a murder instead of actually investigating one. They're assigned to lead a detail to protect Mayor Newton. Now, of course, this is the last thing these two want to do because the mayor is not their favorite person because they know deep down that he's dirty. But they do this anyway. And as you can imagine, things go downhill from there and they get into hellish territory really fast. The intricate plots Gregory's been weaving over the past five books all come to roost here. And what a plot it is. So much happens here in the longest book of the series. It's about three and a half hours longer than any of the others. And what starts out to be a case to save the mayor soon has Hazard and Summers in the middle of a crazy cat and mouse game. Now, they've always been targets in this series to one degree or another, but this time the entire focus is squarely and very uncomfortably on them. So much of this is dredged up from their past as well. I never imagined how far back the tendrils of this mystery would go. And I've said in previous reviews that Gregory never plants a seed that doesn't manifest into something. And that's more true here than ever before. Things that I thought I knew for sure and had been settled in this series were turned upside down. The result of that is that more than ever, I grieve for Hazard and Summers and the crappy lives that they had as teens. It's a past that they cannot get away from. And the way that Gregory Ash has weaved all this tale, it's the intricacy of this mystery combined with how Hazard and Summers spark against each other as detectives and as relatively new boyfriends was incredible. It, the whole thing is like a lesson in, in Damon Swade's like whole like, you know, you have to create the, the friction between characters even while they're coming together. And Gregory does that so well here. And this is particularly true of Hazard. His internal monologue and how he views himself as a broken man was vivid, heartbreaking, and it, frankly, at times I had to turn the book off because Tristan James's narration brought it a little too much to life and just made it so painful I like, had to just set it aside for a minute. It's impossible to dig too much into the plot without getting into way more spoilers than I want to reveal. I can say that the opening chapter with Hazard, Summers, and Summers' daughter Evie was a complete delight. They are hanging out at the county fair. It's near 4th of July, and they're trying to just have a nice moment. Seeing Hazard's parental side was wonderfully light, and especially him getting covered in cotton candy. I could only imagine what that would have looked like had it been presented on a, in like a movie or something, and it was a breath of fresh air before all the action kicked in. Also, the last line of the book is masterful and poignant, and thank God it was there because I needed that so much. Needless to say, I love this book. Throughout the series, Gregory managed to exceed the expectations from the previous. He has said that there's a book seven to come, and I can't imagine what he's going to put Hazard and Summers through in that one, but I know I will be there to read it. If you haven't picked up the Hazard and Somerset series yet, and you're a fan of mysteries, you really need to get this to the top of your TBR right away. I'm so glad that you liked that one, um, though that's certainly not a surprise. You've been gaga for every single book in this series so far, so uh, I'm glad that it met and exceeded your expectations. Now, this week, if there's any particular theme, it's going to be uh, of historical, historical romances. 
Uh, we have Anne Holly coming up in a few moments. Uh, so be sure and stick around everyone for that interview because it's really, really good. But before we get to that, um, Jeff, you beat me to a Cat Sebastian book, which I'm a little jealous about. Um, <laughs> fill, us, fill us in on It Takes Two to Tumble. So I needed something to like cleanse my palate after Criminal Past from all that like angst and everything. And I, this was the sweetest romance with Cats, It Takes Two to Tumble, which is the first book in the Seducing the Sedgwick series. It was exactly what I needed. And it was so just awesome. And I'm sorry I beat you to it, but it's been way too long since I picked up one of Cats' books. And I really wanted to get back into her, the world that she builds. And here we find Ben Sedgwick, who's a country vicar. He's very happy to help his parishioners, and he, he enjoys the simple life that he's kind of carved out for himself. Now, that quiet ends when he's asked to look after three children who are running wild after the death of their mother, and that's left him with only really the household servants to mind them. No governess or tutor can keep up with them, and their naval captain father has been unable to get home from sea. And Ben slowly succeeds in getting this trio to behave, at least a little bit, in time for their father's return. Now, Captain Philip Dacre has lived on the sea for most of his life, and he's uncomfortable at the thought of spending summer on shore, even though he knows his children need him. He's also going through the grief of losing not only his wife, but a crewman who he was also quite close to. He's used to things running in an orderly fashion, and he's quite alarmed to find that discipline doesn't quite seem to work in his household. Now, right off, one of the elements that delighted me into this book was the very sound of music-like goings-on with the children. While no one is singing in the hills, you've got wild children, someone who's come from the church to work with them, and a captain hell-bent on having things run his way. Cat's adaptation of this is simply charming. Ben is as stubborn as Maria when it comes to fighting for the children to be understood rather than simply brushed away. And Philip starts off as a classic Captain Von Trapp, minus the whistle, but soon sees how, how his children are special, and that Ben is quite something too. Now, of course, complications abound. Ben is betrothed to his best friend Alice, who he cares about deeply and wants to make sure that she is cared for as well, because she's not well. Uh, there's a scandal that, uh, that surfaces involving his family, which devastates Ben and calls into question every aspect of his future. Philip, meanwhile, has a ticking clock because he's due to return to his ship at the end of summer. But the more he's home with his children, getting back into the routine of the village and forging more of a connection with Ben, he's left at loose ends trying to decide exactly where his duty lies. Now, each of these problems are managed so deftly by Cat. And she usually manages to bring in help from quite unexpected people to remove the barriers for Philip and Ben to forge a life together and even make that a life that, that works correctly kind of within the era that they live. Now, one of the things I've always enjoyed in Kat's books is front and center here too, and that's the tender way that she writes two guys falling in love. The scenes with Philip and Ben as they move from arguing over the best way to manage the children to finding common ground and then that blooming into the caring and loving for each other, it just gave me warm fuzzies so, so much. I couldn't help but root for them as if I might have been a dear friend. And the children, what a delight here. Oh my God. Sometimes having one child in the book can be too much, but here there are three and I enjoyed all of them in their own way. 
they managed to guide Ben and Philip to discovering what, why they should stay right where they were and be the support system for them. And there's a particularly touching bit of business around a learning disability that's fleshed out for both father and son that was quite a touching moment between them. Got to give credit to Joel Leslie, too. He gets to showcase his work with accents here. His portrayal of Philip and Ben is wonderful, capturing the prickly and tender moments perfectly and only adding to those warm fuzzies that I mentioned earlier. Plus, his voicing of the children is top-notch, along with the rest of the rather large cast of characters. So if you're in the mood to visit an English village and watch two men have a super sweet romance, Cat Sebastian's It Takes Two to Tumble is the book that you're looking for. Now, if you're interested in learning more about the books or anything else that we've talked about in this week's show, all you have to do is go to the show notes page for episode 206 at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. Did you know that podcasts love to get reviews too? Taking a moment to leave a review about the Big Gay Fiction Podcast helps us with the show's visibility online. Please take a moment to visit iTunes and leave a review. Your comments help other readers of gay romance discover this show. Thanks for helping us spread the word about the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. This week we're excited to welcome Anne Holly to the show. Anne writes historical romances, and we're going to talk about her book, Restraint. But she's also been working on a new historic romance that is set in the Regency, but it's also based off a classic piece of literature. And we're going to find out how the masterwork experiment's been working for her. So shall we get to that interview? Yeah. Welcome, Anne, to the podcast. It is so great to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. It's really an honor to be here. So we wanted to get you on the show for a couple reasons, and we'll kick that off with talking about your historical Regency romance called Restraint. Tell everybody what this book is about. Restraint is about a young artist in Regency London. His name is John Waterfield, and he is inconveniently handsome. Now, <laughs> I say inconveniently because he has a secret that he doesn't want high society to find out about him, which is that he is gay, because if they find out, he will be shunned and he will no longer have the business of the high society people who commissioned people like him for fancy portraits. He's the son of a clergyman, what's more, and so he's very, very uptight about his sexuality. Well, enter Viscount Penrith. His first name is Tristan, and he is a young aristocrat who has a terribly scandalous past that he is trying to live down. But he sees a portrait that John has painted of a, of a lady in society, and he decides he wants a portrait too. A little bit on the naughty side, not naked or anything, but a little on the scandalous side. So he commissions the portrait, and as they begin working together, they start sort of hanging out together as well, and their attraction to each other is pretty undeniable. And society starts to notice that there's hmm, a little bit of spark there. And of course, they gossip, and there's a lot of talk. So because John is has this religious background with this very, very judgmental father, he is reluctant to do anything about his attraction to Lord Penrith. And because Lord Penrith really believes that his own nature is corrupt, he's not pushing himself on, on John. He's keeping it kind of cool. And so they manage to restrain themselves, hence the title of the novel, until the portrait is finished and out in the world. And then they finally manage to escape to one of uh, Lord Penrith's country houses at, where they begin this summer love affair. They consummate their love and it's very romantic and they have this blissful time for 
about three weeks before an ex-lover of Tristan's appears on the scene, terribly jealous, and decides that blackmail would be a great way to get back at him. So the lovers are forced into this terribly painful choice of whether they will just give each other up and hide out so that society doesn't find out about them and the blackmailer can't bleed Tristan dry, or are they going to defy the world and, and have their love? So it winds up being this big, dramatic, romantic story of forbidden love that lasts a lifetime. <laughs> they get that H-E-A that everybody needs in a romance, just yep. as it should be. Now, what inspired this book? Well, here's a confession. It began life in the fan fiction space. Okay. Um, that's not widely known. Now it is. <laughs> I started just noodling on the idea of taking the two favorite actors of mine, handsome young guys, uh, and putting them in the Regency, in the costumes, kind of like, you know, paper dolls, and making them, you know, the characters in a sort of a Georgette Hare style frivolous Regency romance. Now, uh, which fandom is not something that I discuss, but if readers are curious and they go looking, they can probably figure it out. Anyway, as I started to research this story, I found that, you know, frivolity really wasn't in it when you're talking about two gay men in that period. So what I wound up with was much more dramatic and sort of ran quite a bit deeper than a typical Regency romance. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot going on for these lovers. You've got the, the Regency period itself, which wasn't necessarily kind to gay folks. And then John's major religious upbringing, too. There had to be challenges here getting them to their HEA. There were, definitely. There are traces in the historical record, uh, as you guys are probably aware, that some queer people throughout history were able to get to that place of actual commitment and living together in some sort of married-like arrangement against all odds, right? But they were very rare. I do have a secondary couple in my story who have an older pair of gentlemen who have been able to achieve that because they're just so rich and so private that they can get away with anything. But what I was so interested in in this story was how society had the power to control non-conforming people, uh, even those at the pinnacle of privilege. You take a character like Viscount Penrith, he's like at the top of world history pyramid of privilege, right? He's just like the highest of the high. And even he was subject to um, these social restrictions. And I really got interested in this sort of capital R romantic idea of a love that would endure for a lifetime despite those uh, restrictions, some of which these two guys do have to observe. What is it about the Regency period that interests you to set stories? Well, first of all, I grew up reading Georgette Heyer's Regency romances. My first one came my way when I was probably about 12. And the thing about her books is that her research is absolutely impeccable. She she presents a story on the surface that's kind of a fantasy version of the period where it, she focuses apparently on the fancy clothes and the hairstyles and the you know beautiful horses and carriages and ballroom scenes and all that sort of thing in manners and the the characters are these rich people with very few obstacles standing in the way uh, of their love except inner you know prejudices or something kind of like pride and prejudice but on every page, if you look, she she goes deeper. She understands the whole socioeconomic background of the time she's writing in, the war that was going on at the time, all the class disparities, the poverty, the dangers of life in London. It's all there if you look for it. And that's what I got really interested in. 
So you take a character like Lord Penrith and ask, you know, what if what if somebody like that was gay? And he was prohibited not only by custom, but by law, right, from loving who he would naturally love. Now, that was really interesting to me. And once I started digging into the research, upper class men in that time typically weren't prosecuted for the crime of sodomy. I put that in air quotes. But you got to be aware it was an actually a capital crime in that time. And lower class men were executed for it. Not always, but sometimes it was not uncommon to have an execution for sodomy right up until uh, the 1820s, which when they finally stopped doing that, they were still imprisoned for years after that, many years, probably more than a century after that. But if the criminal justice system would let these rich men go because they were so privileged and so, you know, sort of sacrosanct, society would step in and society would try and control what it thought was deviant sexual behavior using this wonderful tool called blackmail. And blackmail practically was invented on the basis of, you know, ratting out guys who were gay, right? And some of the greatest men of the age were ruined by the mere accusation of of homosexuality or ruined financially by blackmailers draining their resources on pain of, you know, letting the world know that, that they were gay. So the stakes in the Regency were really high, and yet you have this juxtaposition with this incredibly privileged class of of men who were sexually nonconforming. And I love that juxtaposition that creates the forbidden love story. And the Regency is just the perfect place to set that kind of story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think listeners of the show will know that I've only recently sort of dived into historicals and i've found that sort of um that idea of forbidden love and going against society um it really illustrates the the strength of the the romance of the two main protagonists i'm interested in what your opinion is is that why the regency specifically has been such a a mainstay of historical romance for so long? I mean, does it specifically just boil down to Jane Austen? Or is there something else going on for for readers of this genre? You know, it's hard to say. I don't really have like a scholarly theory about it. I think it does boil down to A, Jane Austen, and B, Georgette Hare. Yeah. Georgette Hare wrote, I forget how, 35 novels or something, a large body of work, much of it set in the Regency, and she she really originated the Regency romance. In her days, she was looking back 100 years. Now we're looking back 200 years. But it's still fascinating. Just there's something about the time where we're right on the verge of, like, the the they were still writing with quills and they didn't have matches yet. And the railroad hadn't quite come along yet. It was about to. So we're just prior to the sort of industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. And yet it's so still civilized enough that it's not just all mud and dirt and gross. <laughs> and I think that's a right. lot of it. I really do. It's it's the clothes and the balls. It's all about the balls. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. One way or another, it's all about the balls. <laughs> One of the reasons that we wanted to ask you to come on the show is is that you are part of another podcast, specifically Sean Coyne's Story Grid podcast. And you were uh, recently asked to come on and become part of like a, a mini series uh, called the Masterwork Experiment. Can you explain what that experiment was all about? Yeah, uh, I can. I can try. It was it was all new to me and. 
I'm a student of Sean Coyne's. He developed the Story Grid method and wrote the book, The Story Grid. I'm a big fan and a student of his. And he has lately come up with this new methodology to help writers write stories better. He's always advocated that writers need to read a lot and not just read, but deeply study masterworks in the genre that they want to write in. So he gives the example in his book of tearing the thriller Silence of the Lambs down to really tearing it down and really looking at what makes it tick, right? So he's taken this a step further. And this masterwork experiment is a new, even higher precision tool for doing that breakdown. So what we did over 10 episodes is we analyzed uh, Annie Prue's novella, Brokeback Mountain, which is a short novella, about 11,000 words. And we broke it down at what we call the beat level, which is a little bit like finding the skeleton, like scraping away the flesh, sorry to be gross, and, and finding the skeleton of the story. And my challenge then was to take that skeleton that we discovered and wrap like new story flesh around it, set in the Regency, because that's my area of expertise. So just in brief, we find in Brokeback Mountain, for example, which for readers who don't know or listeners who don't know, it's set in 1963 in Wyoming, a couple of cowboys, probably everyone's seen the movie, right? The movie's very true to the novella. Anyway, so in the masterwork, we find some familiar beats, like the lovers meet at a job interview. And when you think about that, you've probably read stories where you've seen lovers meeting on the job or at an interview. And we have getting to know you over drinks at a bar. How many scenes like that have you seen or read? It's a very common scene type. We have a drunk scene. We have inclement weather forces them to share a bed. That's like one of my favorite kinds of scenes. It's very common in fan fiction, I can tell you that. <laughs> and so on, right? So if you take away the specifics like the sheep and the mountains and Wyoming and cowboys and the sensibility of 1963 Western America, and you transpose it to England in 1812, you get a completely different story but it's made of familiar things, right? So my job was to find the beats in Brokeback Mountain. We discovered 83 of them, and then those beats become my outline for the story that I'm now working on, which is my Regency Brokeback Mountain, if you will. And it makes it so that I'm no longer dependent on waiting for that bolt of inspirational lightning to strike me. I can just roll up my sleeves and get to work with the tools that I have. So it's been surprisingly liberating. It's a great, great technique. When I started listening to these specific episodes of the Story Grid podcast, I was really fascinated. And uh, it spurred me to actually go read Annie Prue's story. Uh, and I talked about this a couple of episodes back. Uh, and first I was um, not stunned, but I was uh, taken aback that uh, Brookback Mountain is, in fact, quite good. Uh, I think people know I have a, a bit of a distaste for literature with a capital L, but um, I thought Brokeback Mountain itself was exceptional. So when you and Sean went through the story beat by beat and examining some of the story choices that Annie Prue made, I thought that was, you know, number one, fascinating. But I then I thought the, the experiment part of the show was also really intriguing, taking the as you said, the skeleton that Annie Prue came up with and creating your own story. Um, can you give us a sense of um, what your story ended up being about? Well, it hasn't ended up yet because it's still in progress. It's the draft is, well, I think I'm about three quarters of the way at this point. Mm -hmm. But 
I have decided on my two protagonists. They are Matthew, who is a footman. That's a, an indoor servant, a guy who, as the name suggests, runs around and does errands for the, the master and the master's family in the great house. And he, Matthew is kind of proper and he's a little bit ambitious. He sees himself rising in the ranks of the servant class. And then the other lover is Josiah, and he's in the lower order of the servant class. He's a groom, and that means he never even comes in the house. He lives in the stables, right? But he's kind of almost like a horse whisperer. He's an animal lover. He's a he's a really natural man. He's also a foundling. He means he was an orphan left on the church steps as a baby, right? He has no education, but he's got this great sense of humor and this warm, loving heart. I just love Josiah. The biggest problem for him is that he's even more susceptible than Matthew is to the whims of his upper class overlords, right? And the reason for that is that the horses that he's in charge of each one of them probably cost the master more than this guy is ever going to make in his entire life. The disparity is just incredible, right? So he's disposable compared to the actual horses. And so he's got to be really, really careful and kind of tiptoe, and, and he's at risk a lot of the time. Well, these two characters, these, these two young men, are tasked by their master with transporting a couple of these fancy hunting horses across country. And so they head out on this road trip, and it's on the road trip where they fall in love, they start their affair, they get into trouble, and the story progresses from there. What's it been like creating this on the skeleton that you developed? We've we've talked on this show a lot, kind of giving our, our listeners who are readers kind of the clue to how the process works. This seems like plotting on a whole different level because you tore something else apart to, to get the plot that you're now hanging your story on. Yeah, there's a tendency, at least when I first started, to feel really unoriginal, like I'm just stealing. This is not even creative. This is not original at all. But what I've learned is that there's no such thing as originality. There is nothing new under the sun, right? The, what each writer brings to the process is their own unique voice and style and experience. And, and so you get kind of a thumbprint of your personal DNA on the story but it takes a while to realize that that's what you're doing when you're just starting out with, well, okay, first I need a interview scene where the lovers meet, and then I need a drunk scene where they, you know, and it's like, okay, that doesn't feel very creative. But inside those very narrow constraints, that's where creativity can really start to bloom. It's wonderful. It's very exciting. And your draft is public for for folks to go see whether they've been following on the story grid podcast or not where can people find that if they want to see like how you're doing you know here in middle september it's insane isn't it that i would do that it would terrify me as a writer <laughs> it, it i i got like i got tense for you when sean read part of your draft on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> Well, I'm working in a Google Doc. Uh, that's how I always work. I like Google Docs. So it's um, a document that I have made public just for viewing, right? And people can come and look at it. You may catch me at work in there some days. It, it's been known to happen. It's messy. It's chaotic. People who are not writers themselves and not accustomed to the first draft process might think, oh, my God, this is terrible. <laughs> um, but 
the process of shaping it, this is right now I'm in the, I'm in the process of shoveling sand into the sandbox, or you might say assembling building materials. And I haven't really built anything yet. I, I hope by the time we're, we're live with this episode, there will be more structure there. Anyway, I have created a special link just for listeners of this podcast. If they're interested, uh, it's a little landing page where they can find a link to my Google doc. And that is at annholly.net slash BGF podcast. And I hope people will feel free to drop by. And if you catch me working in the document, leave a little comment. Say hello. That's very cool. Now, what's the plan for releasing this finished story? Well, it's very exciting because it gets published at the end. Um, We have a date in Sean's StoryGrid Editions publishing calendar for December 2020, so a little bit over a year from now. And it's going to come out in print. It'll be a little thin, slim print volume plus an ebook and i also hope that we will get an audiobook and we will if i can find a good british narrator and i'm open to suggestions so if anybody <laughs> knows a good british narrator let me know cuz i'm looking both of these stories with restraint and what you're working on with brokeback mountain are are gay romances what attracts you into that genre to tell the two, the story of two men falling in love This is a question that I have done quite a bit of soul searching on over the years because it's a tough question to answer. Personally, I am asexual. I have never conformed to uh, any of society's expectations about a normal or proper relationship. So I always have felt somewhat alienated from, you know, mainstream love stories involving heterosexual couples because it's just not part of my life. Neither, of course, is a gay love story, but somehow that's less mainstream and feels less alienating to me. So it's it's odd that my writing is just terribly romantic, but I don't feel a lot of romantic in, in myself, in my own life. But as I've said, I do love these stories of forbidden love where the barriers to the two lovers getting together are entirely external. They love each other, they're soulmates, they want to be together, and external forces keep them apart, can you say, Romeo and Juliet. And so... I have found that gay love stories set in the past or, you know, in there are certain t- places and cultures today where you could still set them contemporarily uh, that have that forbidden aspect built in. And, and pulling back from that even further, what got Anne Hawley interested in writing in general? Oh, I was a big reader as a little tiny kid. And I just said, you know, there's not enough of these books that I like, which at that time was like the Narnia books and children's fantasy, they used to call it that. Um, and I said, I'm going to write some more. <laughs> and so I started my first novel when I was nine, and I finished it when I was 33. <laughs> and it's not worth publishing, but I still have it around. Someday I might you know, pull it back out, dust it off, and see if I can fix it using story grid principles. You never know. That's great that you took what you started at nine and did finish it. I mean, Yeah, it's pretty amazing, really. That's pretty incredible. So besides finishing up the work you're doing uh, from the masterwork experiment, what else is coming up next for you that, re- that our, our listeners might be interested in? Well, I'm, I've started a new novel. Uh, it's going to be set in Portland, which is my hometown and where I currently live, in 1905, so la- turn of the last century. It's going to have a couple of love subplots, one gay, one lesbian, but that's not the primary story. The primary story is about an occult society, kind of like the Order of the Golden Dawn, and they practice ritual magic, and I'm examining sort of the question of whether that kind of magic is actually real. So it skirts kind of a line between reality and fantasy, and that's what I'm working on now. 
that sounds super cool. And what is the best way for everyone to keep up with you online to f get news about that and the masterwork experiment as it moves towards publication and everything else? Well, I'm on Twitter at Anne Hawley. That's A-N-N-E-H-A-W-L-E-Y. Uh, always needs to be spelled for people. <laughs> uh, my website is annehawley.net, and people can subscribe to my list there where uh, if they do, they will get a chapter a day of restraint for free in their inbox. Um, it's beautifully formatted, looks just like the book, and you can just keep getting chapters till you get the whole book. Uh, furthermore, I am the host of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable, which is a podcast for writers. And so if there are writers among your audience uh, who are interested in advancing their understanding of the StoryGrid method, uh, that's what we do. We analyze a movie or a novel every week according to StoryGrid principles. It's a fun little podcast. Indeed it is. I've enjoyed some of the movies that you've been breaking down over there. No, uh, thank even, you. I think as a non-writer, I would even be fascinated just to hear how the movies get you know, built on a story level occasionally. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So, Anne, thank you so much for coming and talking about Restraint and the, the work you're doing on the Brokeback Mountain Masterwork. And uh, we look forward to hearing more about that in 2020. Well, thank you very much. This week's interview transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the author interview for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And thanks again to Anne for coming and talking with us a little bit more about the Masterwork Experiment. I am super excited to see where her story turns out. Uh, 2020 won't get here fast enough to be able to see that. Oh, I know. I, I can't wait to read it either. It sounds so good. And if you're an author in our audience and want to hear even more about Anne's work on the Masterwork Experiment, you can go over to Big Gay Author Podcast for Episode 8, where she joined us to really kind of dig into the work she was doing there. It's, it's a fascinating listen for authors. Okay, guys, I think that's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, just a quick reminder, as we mentioned at the top of this episode, we've got a Patreon page and lots of great new stuff for you to partake of. If you're interested, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. Now, coming up in episode 207, Louisa Masters is going to join us, and she's going to be speaking about her latest romance, I've Got This. And this, I'm so excited about this one. This is a romance set in a theme park. Yeah, I so much love talking to her about this. It sounds absolutely wonderful, and I know you've been reading it, so I'm looking forward to getting this in front of everybody next week. Yeah, can't wait to get to that. So, guys, remember, no matter where life takes you, the journey will always be sweeter when you have a book. Until next time, everyone, please keep turning those pages and keep reading. For detailed show notes and links to everything discussed in this episode, go to BigGayFictionPodcast.com. New episodes are available every Monday at all major podcast distributors. You can also find us on YouTube. I'm Derek McLean. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.